Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter. Pretty good Bible studies. I'm in Matthew 26. Jesus has just been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane on that faithful Good Friday morning, early, early wee hours of the morning or late Thursday night. In Passion Week, he's got less than a day to live. He was carted off to the house of Annas, the high priest, and then he went from Annas to Caiaphas' house, the other high priest, and then he was taken to Pontius Pilate, then he went to Herod Antipas, then he went back to Pontius Pilate, then he was crucified. That's the general outline of what happened here at the end of his life. So we'll start in verse 57, Matthew 26. Those who had arrested Jesus, that would be the temple police, the Roman soldiers, the high priest, and all the people that were in that mob that came to the Garden of Gethsemane and confronted Jesus when Peter cut off the high priest servant Malchus's ear. Jesus healed the ear. Then all the disciples scattered. Those who had arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had convened. Now, we need to, for background, point out here that Jesus' trial had two stages. The first stage was the Jewish stage. The second stage was the Roman stage. And each stage had several different episodes in it. So once you get that straight, it becomes a lot easier to figure out what happened to him at that last night. Well, let's start with the Jewish trial, stage one. Episode one, if you will. The first stage of his trial was the Jewish trial, and the first episode of that first Jewish trial is a preliminary hearing before Annas. Annas was the former high priest who was the, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the current high priest. Now, this episode in Annas's house is reported only in John, so I'll just r briefly read you the episode in John to set the stage for what happens in Matthew in Caiaphas's house. John 18, verses 12 through 14. Then the company of soldiers, the commander, and the Jewish temple police arrested Jesus and tied him up. First they led him, like a common criminal, I might add. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was advantageous that one man should die for the people. I'll talk about that quote of Caiaphas, which was about a week earlier. Or, excuse me, it was the, the Tuesday earlier, if I remember correctly. We'll talk about that later. John 18, verses 19 through 23 continues the story. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples, that's Annas, and about his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus answered him. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple complex where all the Jews congregate, and I haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. So Jesus defended himself rightly there. Verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the temple police standing by slapped Jesus, saying, Is this the way you answer the high priest? If I have spoken wrongly, Jesus answered him, give evidence about the wrong. But if rightly, why do you hit me? In other words, Jesus is saying, put up or shut up. I got every right to defend myself. I was right. I didn't do anything wrong. So why are you hitting me? And if I've spoken wrongly, prove it. Put up or shut up, basically. Well, as we go on now, we're going to go to the trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, which took place in Caiaphas' house, or his palace, as one English version calls it. I'll just call it his house. He was the ruling high priest in office at the current moment. Annas was the former high priest. And we're leaving Annas' house now. The former high priest will go into Caiaphas' house. Mark 14, 53 through 65 gives the story. They led Jesus away, away from Annas' house, to the high priest. And all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes convened. So now we got the full panoply of critics of Jesus, accusers of Jesus, basically the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin, of course, consisted of chief priests, elders, and scribes. The chief priests are the chief top religious, legal, religious officers. The elders were the civil magistrates, or civil representatives, I should say, and the scribes were the academic folks, the Pharisees, basically. 
And they all, so all these people, all these people in Israel that were divided against each other for one reason or another, they were all united. They had to get rid of this man, Jesus. Peter followed him. Peter followed Jesus at a distance right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the temple police warming himself by the fire. That's on the outside. In the inside, the chief priest and the whole of Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could find none. For many were giving false testimony against him, but the testimonies did not agree. Because you see, the, the Jewish authorities did not want to make this look like a lynching. They wanted to make it look like it was a fair and judicious trial. I'm going to give you five reasons why it was a kangaroo court. But they were trying. They couldn't come up with any false testimony. Some stood up and were giving false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will demolish this sanctuary made by human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not even agree on this. Now, this is the only thing they could hang him on after three years, that they, they could colorably hang him on after three years of teaching that Jesus did. And Jesus never said he was going to demolish the sanctuary made by human hands. He says, if you demolish this sanctuary, talking about his body, I will raise it up in three days. So this was a total perversion of what Jesus said. But even they, then, they couldn't get the perverted testimony to match up. And remember, they're trying to get two or three witnesses to make this look legal. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus. Don't you have an answer to the, what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent, did not answer anything. After all, why should you answer a kangaroo court? Again, the high priest questioned him. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Now, we're going to see later on in Matthew that, that this, the high priest Caiaphas put this under oath. He says, I put you under oath. Are you the Messiah? I am, said Jesus. And all of you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now that's a key verse right there. We're going to talk about it in, when we get back to Matthew. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? In other words, we don't need to try to find false witnesses anymore. We've, we've got him right here by his own testimony. We've got plenty of witnesses right here in the Sanhedrin in my house that Jesus committed blasphemy. What is your decision, Caiaphas says, and they all, all the Sanhedrin, condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, Prophesy! The temple police also took him and slapped him. All right, there's your overview. Now, this final action of the Sanhedrin terminated the all-night session. So he was in Annas' house and Caiaphas' house all Friday morning at night. And Mark 15:1 says, as soon as it, was, as it was morning, the chief priest had a meeting with the elder scribes and the whole Sanhedrin after tying Jesus up. They led him away and handed him over to Pilate. So now the Roman stages start early in the morning at daybreak. So here's the Roman trial, which is stage two of his trials, the Jewish stage being stage one. Now the Roman trial is stage two. And episode one in stage two, the trial before Pilate. We're going to go from Pilate to Herod Antipas and back to Pilate. I guess I should give you some background. Pilate was the Roman procurator. He was not a governor. That was a minor Jewish uh, uh, Roman official that was ruling Jerusalem at the time. They didn't have a king anymore. Herod Antipas was, he was not a king either. He was a tetrarch. And he his jurisdiction was Galilee and Perea. And I think Samaria too. But I know Galilee and Perea. And Jesus was in Jerusalem, which was not in his jurisdiction. However, we're going to see that Pilate discovers that Jesus is a Galilean. So he says, ah, oh, Galilee. Herod Antipas is in charge of Galilee. I'll send him to Herod Antipas. That's generally the, 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 the sequence, the chronology of what happens. We go to Pilate, we go to Herod Antipas and back to Pilate, and then Pilate kills him, crucifies him. So here's before Pilate, we read in Mark 15, 2 through 5. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, you have said it. So Caiaphas asked him, are you the Messiah? Jesus said, yeah, I am. And then Pilate asked him, and Jesus says, I am. And you have said it. It's just an 
kind of an idiomatic way of saying, yes, sir, I am. So Jesus very clearly said he was the Messiah because he was the Messiah. He was telling the truth. And the chief priest began to accuse him of many things. Then Pilate questioned him again. Are you not answering anything? Look how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still didn't answer anything. So Pilate was amazed. Again, why do you answer kangaroo court? All right, so Pilate then turns him over to Herod Antipas. This is only recorded in Luke. So we go to Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 12. When Pilate heard this, what did he hear? He heard the crowd say that the teaching of Jesus was from Galilee to Judea, from Galilee to Judea. So then Pilate heard that and he says, Galilee, whoa, Jesus is from Galilee and Herod Antipas is in charge of Galilee. Maybe I can get out of this mess because I'm sure Pilate didn't want to get involved in this horrible uproar that was going on in Jerusalem because Roman officials don't like uproars because the big bosses back in Rome don't like uproars either and they're likely to take it out on Pilate. So he says, maybe I can pass the book and send him over to Herod Pilate. Herod Antipas. So Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. Finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, that's Herod Antipas, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem during those days. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time he had wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. He got to see John the Baptist just long enough to kill him, and now he wanted to see Jesus. I'm wondering he'd probably want to kill him too. So he kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not answer him again. Why answer a kangaroo court is going to condemn you to death no matter what you're going to say. The chief priest and scribe stood by vehemently accusing him. Then Herod with his soldiers, and you can see how irregular this whole procedure is. It's almost like a lynching. Then Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in a brilliant robe, and sent him back to Pilate. So you already have Caiaphas's people spitting on him and mocking him in the nighttime there, Friday morning, in Caiaphas's house. And now before Pontius Pilate's uh, judgment seat, I think it was in the temple of Jerusalem, if I recall correctly. There they dressed him in a brilliant robe and mocked him again and treated him with contempt. So he's, got, he's been treated with contempt both by the Jews and the Romans. So folks, it was both the Romans and the Jews that killed Jesus. It was both the Romans and Jews that persecuted the early Christian church, and that's what the book of Revelation is all about for all you Orthodox preterists out there. The land beast is the Jews, and the sea beast is the Romans, and that theme follows all the way through the book of Revelation, and it's starting right here. The Romans and the Jews conspired together to kill the very Son of God. That very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Previously, they had been hostile toward each other. I wonder why they became friends. Is it because they knew they had a problem on their hands with the incipient riot, and they figured, well, we're going to put an end to it. We're going to get rid of Jesus, and that'll put an end to the riot, and and we'll both be safe. I don't know. I I don't know exactly why they did become friends. Birds of a feather flocked together, I suppose. They were both murderers. So then... Herod has turned Jesus back over to Pilate, and the trial is concluded, Mark 15, 6-15. At the festival, this is Passover, it was Pilate's custom to release for the people a prisoner they requested. There was one named Barabbas, who was imprisoned with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them, as was his custom. So Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? And of course, he's mocking the Jews when he says the king of the Jews. He's making fun of them. For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priest had handed him over. So he's going, he's going to get his dig in. But the chief priest started the crowd so that he released Barabbas to them instead. And I'll point out that some people say, ask the question, how did the crowd turn against Jesus so fast? This very well could be other people in the crowd that the chief priest bought up, stirred up, maybe suborned, maybe paid them off, maybe prejudiced them against Jesus, talking about how the Romans are going to kill him if Jesus gets away with what he's doing. I don't know, but it's not necessarily the same crowd that turned on him. 
Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Now again, he's not calling him the king of the Jews. He's saying, you guys are calling him the king of the Jews. Again, that's a slam in their face because they didn't really call him the king of the Jews. They were accusing Jesus of calling himself the king of the Jews. So Pilate just kind of compressed that a little bit to throw it at him and says, No, you are the who do who, what do you want me to do with this one that you call the king of the Jews? Again, they shouted, crucify him. I guess Pilate is making them angrier and angrier. Then Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? Pilate knew he was innocent. Everybody knew he was innocent, except that Jesus' murderers, Caiaphas, the high priest, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the rulers of the people. They murdered Jesus, and Pilate knew it. But Pilate went along with it. They shouted, crucify him. Crucify him all the more. And then willing to gratify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. So Pilate is complicit in the murder of the Son of God also. Pilate, I believe, if I remember correctly later, was removed from office and committed suicide. Why did they have the meeting of the Sanhedrin at Caiaphas' house? Before this incident, we're going back to, the, to Caiaphas now, but we're turning to Matthew. Why did they do it at Caiaphas' house? Because it's at night and it's secret. Nobody would know what was going on. Now, interestingly enough, two days earlier, the Sanhedrin had met at this very same house, Caiaphas' house. They consulted about putting Jesus to death. Matthew 26, 2 through 4. This is two days before. We're now at Friday morning, so two days before. It was probably Tuesday. That could be Wednesday, I guess. Probably Tuesday. Tuesday or Wednesday. This is what was said at Caiaphas' house. You know that the Passover takes place after two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the place of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. So this conspiracy, conspiracy had been going on, and this was the very place of the conspiracy, Caiaphas' house. Now Caiaphas, as I said, was the son-in-law of Annas, the former high priest. These high priests were changed often by the Roman governors who was often bribed, and he kicked one out and put another one in. It had long since stopped being hereditary in Aaron's family. Now, in the Sanhedrin, maybe not in his house, but in a Sanhedrin meeting about a week before, a week before this Good Friday, Caiaphas had made an inadvertent prophecy. This we get from John 11, verses 47 through 50. So the chief priest and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and said, What are we going to do since this man does many signs? If we let him continue in this way, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and remove both our place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. So ironically, Caiaphas says that Jesus is going to die for all the Jews and actually... Jesus did die for all the Jews. The difference was is that Caiaphas thought he was going to die. Jesus was going to die for the Jewish nation to save the Jewish nation from the Romans. But actually, Jesus was going to die to save individual Jewish people from their sins. All right, now notice that on the way to Caiaphas' house, I think I might have mentioned this earlier when I read John 18, 12, and I'll mention it again. The company of soldiers, the commander, and the Jewish temple police arrested Jesus and tied him up. So during these proceedings, he was tied up like a common criminal. We got to remember that. And also remember, he had been up all Thursday, had to pass over Thursday night, was up agonizing in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane late Thursday night, arrested, gone through two kangaroo court trials early Friday morning. He had not, he had been up all night, and now he's beaten and slapped around, and it's the next morning. He still hasn't slept the whole night, and he was tied up like a common criminal, the Son of God. Matthew 26, verse 58. Meanwhile, Peter was following him at a distance. This is following at the Garden of Gethsemane. He fled at first, if you recall, but then after they arrested Jesus and turned back and started heading back to Jerusalem, Peter, Peter followed. 
following him at a distance right to the high priest courtyard in Jerusalem. He went in, Peter went in, and was sitting with the temple police to see the outcome. Now, interestingly, another disciple also followed Jesus back into Jerusalem when he was tied up and arrested. This other disciple is thought to be John because in John 18:15 we read, Meanwhile, Simon Peter was following Jesus as was another disciple. He's not named, but since John is writing the book, and a lot of times these disciples, when they're talking about themselves, they don't mention their own name out of a sense of modesty, as in John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, but he didn't mention his name. So this as was another disciple. So John apparently followed him back in. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. That would be Peter, not, not John. Now, Peter had apparently stopped himself from running away. He probably recovered his composure and doubled back to follow Jesus, remember, remembering all of his protestations about, I will never deny you, I will never deny you, even if I die, I'll never deny you. So he's probably feeling a little guilty about that, So he, and plus he's curious about, he really wants to know what's going to happen, plus he loves Jesus and he's hoping he's not going to get killed. Here's some possible outcomes in Peter's mind. Jesus could exert his divine power and escape, and I bet you that's what Peter was hoping. But, you know, but on the other hand, he had a chance to do that before. Remember, he knocked that soldier down, knocked that person down at the arrest in Gethsemane, knocked him to the ground, knocked them, not just one, knocked him to the ground, but he didn't escape, and he kept telling the disciples, hey, so that the scripture's going to be fulfilled, I'm going to die, he told them over and over again, I'm going to die, so I don't know, if Peter thought that, it was a wishful thing, it was wishful thinking, that Jesus was going to escape using his divine power, maybe he thought Jesus would be scourged by the high priest and let go free, maybe the priest is still scared of the people. Or then he might have been had this horrible suspicion in the back of his mind that Jesus would actually be sentenced to death, which is, of course, what happened. Now, these disciples scattered, by the way. John ended up watching the crucifixion with Mary, and the other ones ended up hiding in Jerusalem. As far as we can tell, remember, after the resurrection, we read in the post-resurrection accounts, the disciples, like, remember, Thomas was in one place, and Jesus came into the room, and Thomas saw that. Well, that was in a hiding in a house in Jerusalem. So they were around. They just weren't. They were. They were laying low. Now Peter followed at a distance. Now why was he at a distance? Because he didn't want to be identified with Jesus, of course, because that would mean he would be captured, probably. Now, you know, people always say that. Well, you know, Peter's a coward. Well, I don't know. I I I think it was smart actually, because if Peter had gotten caught, what would have happened to the church after Jesus' resurrection? Jesus told him to scram. He said, well, he told the arresting officers. He said. Oh, you're searching for me, Jesus of Nazareth? Well, then you're not looking for me, so let these people go. Jesus told the arresting office to let them go, and they scattered. So I don't think it was wrong to not walk in there and commit suicide, basically, and let them catch them and, 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 and execute them. The problem with Peter had is not following Jesus at a distance and being careful. His problem was denying Jesus when he had the chance. Because then he just out and out lied. I mean, there's a difference between hiding from the authorities and the difference between when you ask the confess Jesus and you lie about it, saying you don't know him. Matthew 26, verses 59 through 61. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus. Now remember, we're still in Caiaphas's house and the Sanhedrin is with Caiaphas in the house. They're not in the regular meeting rooms in the temple. They're in Caiaphas's house. But the Sanhedrin was there. They were looking for false testimony against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they could not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Finally two came forward finally two who came forward stated this man said I can demolish God's sanctuary and rebuild it in 3 days. Now Caiaphas is probably presiding over this kangaroo court of the Sanhedrin. They're looking for false witnesses. Now again they're trying to make it look like it's not a lynching but it's a legal proceeding and so they're looking for false witnesses. They couldn't find any because their testimonies contradicted each other. 
Now, false witnesses were supposed to have been prosecuted by the Sanhedrin, so that was something that was not done right. Deuteronomy 19, 18 through 19, the judges are to make a careful investigation, says the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy, and if the witness turns out to be a liar who has falsely accused his brother, you must do to him as he intended to do to his brother. You must purge the evil from you, did the these upholders of the law, did they do that? No, of course they did not. In fact, I'm going to find five illegal. At the end of this, I'm going to give you five illegalities practiced by this Sanhedrin court. And I guess we could add this is number six, the refusal to prosecute the false witnesses. We can start. Let me just give you one right now. It was a capital trial that was held at night. Now, it's not in the law of Moses, but according to the Jewish rabbinical law, you don't start a capital trial at night. You can't receive the testimony of witnesses at night in a capital trial. So there's your first illegality of this kangaroo court. This court was definitely a crooked court. Now, the Sanhedrin before had suborned witnesses trying to stop the Christians. This is interesting, Acts 6, 11 through 13, about three years earlier. Then they, the Sanhedrin, persuaded some men to say, we heard him, referring to Stephen, the first martyr, we heard him, Stephen, speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, so they came, dragged him off, and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man does not stop speaking blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. False witnesses. Nothing worse than people who pervert the legal system. Reminds me of our current Justice Department. This is February of 2019. If anybody listens to this tape 20 years from now, look back in the history books and see what a bunch of crooks that are in the American government right now. And the legal, I'm talking about the FBI and the CIA. So these people wanted to execute Jesus under the color of law, so they're looking for false witnesses. They violated their own legal canons. Here's another illegality. I'm going to summarize this later, but another legal canon is that you're not supposed to assume that the person accused of a capital crime is guilty before you try him. You're supposed to assume he's innocent and make the people prosecuting him have the burden of proof to come forth with evidence to condemn him. But instead, they said, you're guilty. Defend yourself and prove you're innocent. They put the burden of proof on Jesus, which was wrong. This is John Gill quoting the Mishnah. And so that's another uh, illegality of this kangaroo court. And they were looking for false witnesses. They might, and we don't have proof of this, but Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown speculates they could have actually bribed these witnesses instead of just looking for them. They might have bribed them. Now, how weak was the chief priest in the Sanhedrin's case. Jesus' accusers had to go back over three years to find purported evidence. This remark about tearing the temple down in three days, that was on his first visit to Jerusalem. That was over three, three and a half years ago. And after that, after all the teaching he had done, they couldn't find one thing to show that he had tried to overthrow Moses and the law, that he had tried to start a political revolution, that he'd done anything against the Roman peace, that he'd done anything against the Jews' law, against Moses. And Jesus, as that was three and a half years went on, was increasing in boldness. He was becoming more and more open. He was totally open that last week when he was in Jerusalem. Uh, and they still couldn't find anything to convict him of. So what they did, they, did the witnesses do, the false witnesses do? They perverted his words to make it sound like Jesus was referring to the physical temple instead of his body that was going to be raised up in three days. And I'll just read the account here of Jesus' original statement which is only found in John chapter 2 only in John amongst the four gospels John 2 verses 18 through 22 so the Jews replied to him what sign of authority will you show us for doing these things Jesus answered destroy this sanctuary now you notice he didn't say I will destroy the sanctuary he's saying if you destroy this sanctuary is what he meant destroy this sanctuary and I will raise it up in three days therefore the Jews said this sanctuary took 46 years to build and will you raise it up in three days 
but he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. So you see, Jesus never said he was going to tear the temple down. That was just stupid. They perverted Jesus' meaning completely. Now, it's interesting. Even if the scribes originally understood Jesus to mean a physical temple, which, of course, would make him guilty, they didn't understand him that way afterwards. Because we read in Matthew 27, verse 63, which is close to where we are about to be. Excuse me, it's in the next chapter. I'm sorry. Matthew 27, verse 63 Sir, this is the scribe speaking, Sir, we remember that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, after three days, I will rise again. They didn't say, after three days, I will build a temple up again. He said, after three days, I will rise again. So out of the mouth of the scribes, you've got them saying, admitting that they didn't believe that Jesus had said he was going to tear the temple down and build it back up physically. Now, this statement was less than three days later than this kangaroo court. The scribe said that. So these false witnesses were coming up with things about Jesus tearing the temple down, which they themselves didn't even believe. They knew it was false. The verse here, verse 60, says that they could not find any false witnesses. Why? Well, because Jesus was, was entirely innocent. Mark adds that the false witnesses contradicted each other. Here in Matthew, it says they could not find any false witnesses. But Mark adds an interesting detail. He said it was worse than that for the Sanhedrin that the false witnesses actually contradicted each other. Mark 14, verse 56, For many were giving false testimony against him, but the testimonies did not agree. Jameson Fawcett Brown says here, quote, But even in this they failed. One can, In this meaning finding false witnesses. One cannot but admire the providence which secured this result, since on the one hand it seems astonishing that those unscrupulous prosecutors and their ready tools should so bungle a business in which they felt their whole interest bound up. And on the other hand, if they had succeeded in making even a plausible case, the effect on the progress of the gospel might for a time have been injurious. And that it really is something here. That's a good point that Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown make. These people were judicial criminals. They were judicially murdering Jesus, and it's obvious. And they did not, could not get their facts straight, and they made it so obvious that they had murdered Jesus rather than tried Jesus justly that there's no defense for them. Everything they did was wrong. Now, these false witnesses were important to the Jews. They needed to find witnesses that agreed with each other on the testimony because under Jewish legal procedure, witnesses acted as prosecutors, so they had to have somebody to prosecute Jesus, and that would be the, the witnesses, and they couldn't get a conviction unless they had two or three witnesses whose testimony corroborated each other. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, One witness cannot establish any wrongdoing or sin against a person. Whatever that person has done, a fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And, of course, that assumes that the testimony is in agreement of those two or three witnesses. So the high priest is stymied now, so they're going to try something else. Matthew 26, verse 62 through 63. The high priest then stood up and said to him, Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. Kangaroo court, why answer? Then the high priest said to him, By the living God, I place you under oath. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, Caiaphas is upset. He can't get testimony against Jesus to convict him. He can't get Jesus to say anything which might convict him. So finally, he says, I'm going to get Jesus to talk. I'm going to put him under oath. Now, if you put somebody under oath in a Jewish trial, the person placed under oath has to answer. This is in Leviticus 5.1. When someone sins, if he has seen, heard, or known about something he has witnessed and did not respond to a public call to testify, he is responsible for his sin. So you have to, when you're put under oath, you have to answer. 
So that explains why Jesus answered. This time he didn't answer before. Because Jesus always kept the law. I say always. He was, he was pretty scrupulous about keeping the law. Verse, well, in verse 63, now Caiaphas has finally got what he wants. He's got Jesus to admit under oath that he was the Messiah. And of course, Caiaphas is thinking of the Messiah as a political guy, a human being, not, not who Jesus really was, divine and human at the same time. But at any rate, he's got his testimony that he needs. So we go to Matthew 26, verse 64. You have said it, Jesus told him, and you have said it. It's just another way of saying yes. Now, this is a key verse here. We'll take some time to explain it here because it figures in the futurist preterist controversy about Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. You have said it, Jesus told him. What he's basically saying is, yes, I am the Messiah. But I tell you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, the first obvious problem here is what is Jesus talking about? When is he going to come? When will the Son of Man come and be seated at the right hand of power? And when will he come on the clouds of heaven? Well, the futurists, of course, whenever they see coming up into the world, preterists say this refers to 8070. A futurist might object to a preterist and say, well, how can Caiaphas live long enough to see 8070? He's not going to be able to see it. And that's true because Caiaphas is old enough. You do a little bit of calculation, he'll probably be about 102 in 8070. He's probably not going to be around. But the quick answer to that is, well, if he's not going to be around in 8070, he's certainly not going to be around at the end of the, at the uh, end of the world 2,000 plus years later. So how do we handle that? I tell you, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power. Well, they, the way the futurists handle it, they say the you refers to Caiaphas representing all the Jews. So he's saying, I'll tell you Jews that you Jews will see Jesus coming at the end of time. Well, I think it makes much more sense to say, to talk about you referring to Caiaphas, and I'll tell you why, because you have to go to the Greek to see the singular and plural forms of the you in that passage. But I tell, and I've got this in my notes, and this is slam dunk, folks. This is not questionable Greek, or maybe we can translate it this way or that way. This is slam dunk. But I tell you, that's singular. So Jesus looks at Caiaphas and says, okay, you have said it. The first you, I'm sorry, you have said it. That's singular. Jesus says, you, Caiaphas, singular, have said it. I am the Messiah. In other words, I agree with you, Caius, I am the Messiah. But I tell you, now that second you is plural. So Jesus turns to the Sanhedrin and says, I tell all you guys, if you're from the north, or I tell y'all, if you want to be from the south, but I tell y'all, in the future, y'all will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So what he's saying is, the Sanhedrin, you guys in the Sanhedrin are going to see me coming back in judgment to destroy Jerusalem. This, the verse that Jesus is quoting here is Daniel 7.13, which I will read for you. I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. That's what Jesus is referring to. And if you look at Daniel, that's referring to Jesus inheriting the fifth kingdom, the kingdom, the stone which which was represented by a stone that smashed the feet of the Roman Empire and then spread out all throughout the world, the kingdom of God, the church. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to come establish my church, and it's going to happen when you guys go down in AD 70. The coming, by the way, is coming to get his kingdom. It, Jesus doesn't care whether it's coming up or coming down. You don't need to worry about that detail. People always get hung up on that. If you read verse 14, it also talks about how he's going to inherit an everlasting eternal kingdom too. Son of man, messianic term. I was one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. So what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 26, verse 64, is you will see the son of man, the Messiah, because he said, you, I, he just confessed to Caiaphas, yes, I'm the Messiah, and you're going to see this Messiah. 
you Sanhedrin, he turns to the Sanhedrin and says, you guys, you Sanhedrin people are going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. The right hand, of course, is the, is the, is the right hand is the position of authority and power. He's going to be seated at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds of heaven is referring back to Daniel when he receives his kingdom. It was not meant to be taken literally. And if you want to take it literally and say, well, the coming has to be literal, and so you've got to see the Son of Man coming physically in the sky, well, futurist, you're going to have to see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and you can't do that. How are you going to see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God? That's obviously symbolic and literal. So if you're going to get the preterist on the fact that the coming is not literal, you've got to look to yourselves to see whether you can see Jesus sitting at the right hand of, the, of God's power, literally also. So... There's a little question about the right hand of power. This phrase is kind of awkward, at least in English. John Gill says it's the power which is God, the right hand of the power of God, the right hand of the power which is God. That's the way I took it. Jesus sitting at the right hand of God because that's the place of authority. Now, to show you that my view of this verse is not off the wall, I'm going to give you two of two of my commentators' comments on this, John Gill and Adam Clark. Now, they are not total orthodox preterists like I am, but they always at least admit that I might be right. So here's a quote from Gill. So Christ coming to take vengeance on the Jewish nation, as it is often called, the coming of the Son of Man is described in this manner. And he's referring to this verse here. So, but Gill also allows that this might refer to the final judgment too. He's kind of wishy-washy about it. But he does allow that it could refer to eighty seventy. Adam Clark does the same thing. Quote, you and this whole nation shall shortly have the fullest proof of it, proof of my Messiahship. For hereafter, in a few years... You shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, fully invested with absolute dominion, and coming in the clouds of heaven to execute judgment upon this wicked race. Referring to 8070, although he says it might refer to the final judgment. I think it's just as easy to say it refers to 8070. Matthew 26, verse 65, Then the high priest, that's Caiaphas, tore his robes and said, He is blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. So Caiaphas got what he wanted, a confession that Jesus was allegedly committing blasphemy because he claimed to be the Messiah. So he, Caiaphas gives up on the false witnesses who weren't working out for him anyway. And he tore his robe, which, by the way, it's arguable that he broke the law there, again, because because it was illegal to tear the high priest to tear his garments. Leviticus 10.6, Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Eliezer and Ithamar, Do not let your hair hang loose and do not tear your garments or else you will die. And the Lord will become angry with the whole community. However, your brothers, the whole house of Israel, may mourn over that tragedy. This is the death of Nadab and Abihu when they offered strange fire, when the Lord sent the fire and burned them up, burned up Nadab and Abihu, even though they were of the high priestly family, of the family of Aaron, and they had two brothers, Eleazar and Ithamar, they couldn't tear their garments. Well, at least in mourning they couldn't, and there's probably their, could be their official garments, it might be just their ordinary garments, but they couldn't tear them to mourn. Leviticus 21.10, the priest who is highest among his brothers, who has had the anointing oil poured on his head and has been ordained to wear the garments, that's the high priest, must not dishevel his hair or tear his garments. So apparently Caiaphas tore his garments at least uh, colorably under, uh, in violation of the law. You could argue that uh, it's referring only to mourning, mornings at funerals, or you could argue that it was prohibiting the Levitical law prohibited only the tearing of priestly garments, and in the Sanhedrin here, he was not wearing his priestly garments. He was wearing his ordinary clothes. We don't know, but it's it's a possibility. But at any rate, why did he do it? Well, that was an ordinary sign for blasphemy. It could be he was trying to gin up his audience, trying to be histrionic about it, to really make it look bad for Jesus. Some people say that this was an unintentional, 
unintentional symbol of the rendering of the kingdom away from the high priest when he ripped his clothes. I think that's highly imaginative, and I don't think so. But anyway, Caiaphas says, you got the blasphemy? Let's nail him. Verse 66, what is your decision? They answered, he deserves death. Now, Mark says they all condemned him to the guilty of death, so it was a unanimous decision. Now, that all has to be taken with a grain of salt, because sometimes all merely means a great many, because there, there could have been two people in that Sanhedrin who did not vote to kill Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea was there, and he, of course, provided the grave in which Jesus was entombed. Luke 23, verses 50 through 51, there was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had not agreed with their plan and action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. And also, if Nicodemus was there, it's doubtful he would have voted to condemn Jesus. But anyway, Jesus is condemned. Now, let's summarize all the phony stuff that went on at this trial. First of all, the judge became a party and an accuser. The judge was not objective. The judge was trying to find witnesses to condemn Jesus. Second thing, they didn't examine the evidence to see whether Jesus actually fit the prophecies of the Messiah, concerning the Messiah. They never gave Jesus a chance. Well, I guess they gave him a chance, but they would have shouted him down immediately uh, to say whether he fulfilled the prophecies. They didn't look at that, all the evidence to see that Jesus fulfilled prophecies. And there's ton of, tons of Old Testament prophecies that show that Jesus could have fulfilled the prophecy. Being born in Bethlehem, for example, in Micah. And on and on and on. They didn't look at that. Caiaphas instead looked for false witnesses. The trial was held at night. Jesus was assumed to be guilty, and he had to prove his innocence instead of vice versa. This was a kangaroo court, folks. Not surprising what the verdict turned out. Verses 67 and 68 in Matthew 26. Then they spit in his face and beat him. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Now they blindfolded Jesus first. We can find that out from Mark. A detailed man, then some began to spit on him to blindfold him and to beat him, saying prophesy. That explains the prophesy because he couldn't see who hit him. So he's saying, tell us something you don't, you can't see, which is what prophets do. Who hit you? Of course, mockingly saying that. Jesus, of course, did not comply with this false request to prophesy. And on the other hand, he didn't threaten revenge. He did not curse or rage at them. He just stood there and took it. And as well he should, because there's no, there was no point in fighting here. Now, Jesus, by the way, did, did not turn the other cheek. I don't have the verse here, but in this passage, I think it's in the John version of it, um, when somebody actually slapped him on the cheek. This is related in John when Jesus was before Annas, the other high priest. And he responded to it with his and said, I'm innocent. Don't do that to me. But at any rate, that's for another story here. Once they saw Jesus condemned, the people, now these are not the, the members of the Sanhedrin, the judges. These are the, the servants, the temple police, the lackeys, the subordinates. They felt emboldened, and they say, well, he's guilty, so let's mock him. They spit in his face and beat him and slapped him, beat him with a closed fist and slapped him with an open hand. Slapping, or spitting, excuse me, was considered extremely insulting by the Jews, as it is to anybody. I think any culture would feel that way. One who spit before or in the presence of his master was guilty of death, according to John Gill, who got that out of the rabbinic law. If you spit in front of your master, you died? Ooh, that was considered very bad to spit on a Jew, and here Jesus was being spit on. Job 30, verse 10, to express his agony, he says, They despise me and keep their distance from me. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I will give my back to those who beat me, and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. Prophesying of the Messiah. Here's a verse in Micah 5, 1 that could have been fulfilled. According to John Gill, this incident does fulfill it. Now, daughter who is under attack, you slash yourself in grief. 
a siege is set against us, that's referring to Jerusalem, they are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. Matthew 26, verse 69. Now Peter was sitting in the courtyard. We're going to talk about the denial of Peter in the next audio, so we'll stop it right here at verse 69. I hope you enjoyed this audio.